Sorry about that. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd, I'd invite you to join me in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. We're going to start in, in verse 10, and I just invite you to stand with me as we read Scripture this morning. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his powerful strength. Put on God's armor so that you can make a stand against the tricks of the devil. We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. Therefore, pick up the full armor of God so that you can stand your ground on the evil day and after you have done everything possible to still stand. So stand with the belt of truth around your waist, justice as your breastplate, and put shoes on your feet so that you are ready to spread the good news of peace. Above all, carry the shield of faith so that you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Offer prayers and petitions in the Spirit all the time. Stay alert by hanging in there and praying for all believers. As for me, pray that when I open my mouth, I'll get a message that confidently makes this secret plan of the gospel known. I'm an ambassador in the chains for the sake of the gospel. Pray so that the Lord will give me the confidence to say what I have to say. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, you know, we've come to the last sermon in this series we've, we've been journeying through together, and I just want to remind us for a few moments kind of where we started in this journey. This book of, of Ephesians is Paul's letter to the church in, in Ephesus, and most people today would believe that this wasn't just to a local church body. This was actually a letter that was intended to some of the larger church, with the church in Ephesus just kind of being representative of some of the, the challenges that, that God's people were facing. The church in Ephesus had it, its own particular challenges that, that were challenging to to, to living out the faith in, in the context of the world in which they found themselves. Ephesus was an important city. It was kind of the, the center of, of economics or of, of politics for, for its region. It, it, today, it'd be like the kind of place where people would go for healthcare or entertainment or education or commerce. It was kind of the most important city in its region, and so people were drawn there for different things. It was not only the most important city in its region, but it was part of the most wealthy and powerful empire at that time, the, the empire of Rome. And in Ephesus, there were people who, who loved their empire. They, they, they loved the prestige and power of being a Roman citizen. There was also a lot of people in Ephesus who were very spiritual. They, they worshipped all kinds of, of various gods. And because of these passions for empire and these passions for worship, one of the challenges is that sometimes these two things kind of got mixed together. And it became difficult to know if, if the worship was worship of the gods or, or worship of the empire because the people took some of the best things from the empire of Rome and the best things from worship of the gods that they worshiped there. And they, they just kind of mixed these all together and it got difficult to distinguish what was what. And this was challenging in the church as well. How, 
How are God's people to, to keep worship focused on God alone? Especially when some of the realities of the empire in which they live affected their daily lives through all sorts of different ways. How are God's people to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ in the midst of a world that claimed for all these different allegiances? You know, it's in this context that, that Paul reminds God's people of who they are, that they are people who were found, rescued, transformed, and given new life through Jesus Christ alone. That Jesus Christ alone was their source of life and a hope and future. And because of this, because of what Christ had done for them, Christ had, had called them and invited them to be a part of what it is that God was doing in the world. And that they were to live up to this calling that they had. But Paul, is, Paul realizes the challenges here. Even though they've received this good news of Jesus Christ, and even though they've been called to participate in the good news in the world, Paul knew that that would be a challenging task ahead of them. Any of you ever feel challenged to be faithful to God in the midst of the realities of the world in which we live? Paul knew that that would be a challenge for them, so he gives them these encouraging words as we come to, to the end of Ephesians. He he, he uses this metaphor that is a, a really well-known metaphor, the armor of God. This is one of those metaphors that we just, we really like this in the church. In fact, we like it so much that, that you can find the armor of God on t-shirts and on sweatshirts. You can find the armor of God on quilts. You can find little desktop statues of the armor of God that you can place on your desk. There's armor of God jewelry. There's armor of God keychains. There's armor of God mugs. I did not find an armor of God toaster. The reason I say that is because I have found a Jesus toaster before. It will toast your toast with a picture of Jesus. You know, we, we love this image of the armor of God, but as I was looking this week at some of the different ways in which we've tried to put the armor of God on things, you know, something struck me. The images that I was seeing had far more to do with medieval knights. It's like the, the images that were being used took, took a lot more from King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table than they ever did drawing from Scripture. And that actually kind of struck me for a little bit. I thought about that because I thought, you know, one of the challenges with that, you know, when we think of people like the, the knights of the round table, we think of these buff and tough dudes who will face any challenge head on and overcome with might and determination and power. And Ephesians makes it very clear that God is powerful and that God gives God's power to God's people. But when we think of God's power, what is the greatest example of the power of God that we have ever seen. The greatest example was when Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross to overcome sin. Power is seen in scripture through sacrifice, right? Power is seen as followers of Jesus Christ by the one who gave up himself, his rights and privileges for the sake of others. 
And so when I, when I think of the armor of God, I don't want to lose sight of this fact that God's power is different than some of the worldly power. And so when Paul paints this metaphor, I mean, he is using a metaphor on purpose, right? The, those who would have first received this, they would have thought of, of a Roman centurion. Roman centurions who were strong and powerful and were symbols of, of all that Rome had to offer. But that's not the only image that would have come to mind. In fact, there's probably another image that would have even been more powerful than the image of a Roman centurion for, for Paul's hearers when they, when they first hear, heard these words. In fact, it was the language that begun or, or that started these verses we read today that probably would have struck many mental pictures in the minds of those who read this. In verse 10, we read, be strengthened by the Lord. Do you know who that, would have, who that would have created images of in their minds? Be strengthened by the Lord. For most people who would have heard this, they probably would have thought of one person, King David. Do you know why they would have thought of King David? In 1 Samuel, it tells us the story of King David, who, who had been kind of serving in all these different ways, and then he was anointed king, right? But Saul was still on the throne. And David served Saul, but, but David started getting all this recognition and people liked him and all of this. And so Saul kind of got jealous and, and Saul wasn't sure what to do. And eventually Saul got to this place where he just wanted to kill David. How many of you remember this story? And David kept sticking around for a while, but eventually David's like, one of these days Saul's going to succeed and Saul's going to kill me. So, so David actually fled Israel and he went to, to the country of Philistine. And he settled there and he started recruiting these men who would come and, and be a part of his, of his troops there. And he built up forces there. And, and in 1 Samuel chapter 30, it tells us that, that, that one, one year King David, or not King David at that point, but David and his, his troops kind of went to war. And while they were gone, there were these Amalekite raiders who came into their hometown. And they burned everything to the ground. And they kidnapped, they captured all of David's and his soldiers' wives and sons and daughters and stole everything that belonged to their people. When David and his soldiers returned to their home, hometown, they, they literally just saw ashes on the ground. Everything was gone. And David and his soldiers, it tells us they started to cry. They started to weep because everything that mattered to them was gone. And then the soldiers were so angry and so upset. You know what they started talking about doing right then and right there? Just killing David and putting an end to all of this. And David was afraid. And in 1 Samuel 30, it says, But then David was strengthened by the Lord. And this is a turning point. Because David rallies his men and they go after the Amalekites. And by the time they catch up, his troops have dwindled to just 200 men who are left. And they finally catch up with the Amalekites and they destroy them. And they recover every single thing that had been taken from them. It wasn't long after this that King Saul would be killed in battle. And then not long after that, that David would finally become king. But it was when David was strengthened by the Lord that was the turning point. 
That was the turning point, not just in David's life, that was the turning point for, for the people of Israel, because without King David, their past was not much to remember. Their past was not much to be looked upon. And in fact, as we read through some of the other uh, places in the Old Testament, especially like in a book like Isaiah, where, where we see these messages of the Messiah who is to come, the new King David, the one who will set God's people free once again. In the book of Isaiah, there's a lot of images to things that we see here listed in the armor of God. And so for Paul's hearers in Ephesus, when they heard these words, their minds would go back to King David and to scriptures that promised about the Messiah who would come and, and these characteristics that were true of, of the Messiah who was to come to set God's people free. You know, as far as the actual armor that we see here, really this, this armor is this set of, of habits. Probably the better word in the church is not habits, it's virtues, there are these Christian practices that were to characterize the lives of God's faithful people. And that when God's people would, would practice these, these virtues, it would form them and shape them. Some of you are familiar with the passage in Philippians that encourages followers of Jesus to work out your own salvation. We all have our part to do to respond to what God has done within us. And that's what these virtues are talking about. There's, there's the truth, and truth is not just a doctrine. Truth for us ultimately is Jesus Christ. And the way we affirm the truth is not with our mouths, it's with our lives that demonstrate that we believe and have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. And this righteousness or justice that is talked about is, is not living life looking out only for ourselves, but, but looking out for those around us who, who might be poor or oppressed or forgotten or whatever it is. This is a recurring theme we see throughout Scripture. And we're to live in this sort of a way. And the gospel of peace, that we are to maintain the, the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. And unity and uniformity are not the same things. But the church is to maintain the unity that we have in Jesus Christ, right? You know, I don't, I don't know if any of you have had these experiences. But the most hurtful things that have ever been said to me or about me happened inside of the church. I've known others too within the church where sometimes the most bitter arguments or disagreements can happen in the church. You know, we are not the enemy. There is unity that comes through Jesus Christ. In spite of our differences, we're united together through the blood of Jesus Christ who saves us all, amen? And so we're called to preserve that in the midst of the challenges that we face. And there's the faith, there's this, this loyalty to God that is also lived out in love towards one another that keeps us safe in the midst of the challenges. And the salvation, this assurance that we have of salvation by being faithful to our identity that we are in Jesus Christ and listening to the word of the Spirit as we share that same word with those around us. These are the practices or virtues of the Christian faith. Now, here's the thing about virtues. Virtues are practices that are, are formed or honed over time. You know, it's easy to say, you know, if, if there was a moment when my faith was called into question, I hope I would be the kind of person who would stand up for my faith. You know how you become that kind of a person who would stand up for the faith? 
It's in all the little ways that you do it leading up till then. Virtues are formed over time. It's practicing these Christian practices day in and day out, week in and week out, in all the little ways that build us up as followers of Jesus Christ. You know, I had a friend of mine when I was in, in college and seminary, she's actually cousins with Pastor Mindy. Her name is Lindsay, and for a little while, Lindsay served as a flight attendant. And, and she had to go to, to training before she started working as a flight attendant. And I remember after she got done with training, I don't remember how long the training was, but it was longer than I would have thought that a flight attendant would have to go to training for. And so I asked her, I said, well, what do they like, what do they, what do they do? Like in training you for be a flight attendant? I mean, do you just learn how to like do this, right? Or... Do you learn how to like get as much ice as possible in the cup so you receive as little soda as possible in the cup? I mean, how do they train you as flight attendants? And she said the majority of training for flight attendants is what to do in the case of an emergency. So when that situation arises, you don't even have to think about it, you just respond. I was thinking of this when I, when I watched the, there's the movie Sully about uh, the miracle on the Hudson. You guys remember when the plane landed on the Hudson? And, and, and in the film, which is, I would imagine this is probably kind of how it took place, just before that plane landed on the Hudson, the, the pilot said, brace for impact, and the flight attendants continued to repeat this, head down, stay down, head down, stay down. I mean, here's this moment, the flight attendants were on the plane with everybody else. They were fearful for their own lives. But in that moment, they did what they were trained to do because they had practiced it so many times. You understand what I'm talking about? This is the way that Christian virtues are formed. When we live in faithful obedience in all of the little ways to prepare us for those big moments. But there's a little bit more in this too. You know, the, the virtues, as we build these virtues, they give us great strength. But, but that's not the end of the story here. Have you ever noticed how many virtues or pieces of armor we have here? Have you ever count them? There's six. Not seven. There's six. Well, why does that matter, Pastor Mark? You know, throughout Scripture, there's a number that represents, it's kind of the perfect number. It's God's number. Anyone know what that number is? It's seven. The reason the number seven, it, it's seen as the, the number of, of wholeness or completion. A lot of this comes from the creation story, right? When God created, and how many days did God work for creation? Seven days. Six days he created, the seventh day he rested. And that seventh day is a part of this. That resting in fellowship, in communion, in worship with God. Seven was the, the creation story, and seven was this number that built the foundations of life and worship. Those followers of God were to worship every how many days? Seven days. The seventh day was the reminder of what all of this was about. All of this is about living in right relationship with God and one another. And it wasn't just seven days, but every seven years, there was a Sabbath year. And every seven sets of seven years, there was the year of Jubilee. Seven represents the fullness of God's intention, God's telos, God's goal, God's, God's purpose for things. Six is just short. 
of seven. You know, if we think, I, I use creation purposely because if we think of, of creation story, we think, well, God only created for six days. But without that seventh day, there is not worship. And we were created for the purpose of worship. Six falls just short of that. Are you following what I'm saying here? Six is just short of seven, which, which is why in the book of Revelation, when we read about the Antichrist, the Antichrist is known as 666. So close to perfect, but not quite there. You know, it's easy sometimes to look for the Antichrist that we fail to notice how many things in this world are against Christ that look so good but fall just short of all that they promise. You understand what I'm saying? Remember I talked earlier about the challenge in Ephesus of not giving in to all of the good things that the world had to offer, but living faithfully in what it is that comes through Jesus Christ. And when we read about the armor of God, there are these six pieces, these six practices, these six virtues that give us so much strength but those things that we do are not enough. And after listing these six pieces of the armor of God, there's one more thing that Paul says. Did you catch it? Pray. Pray always. Pray in all circumstances and pray for others. Well, this is a reminder for all that we do to respond to God's grace and God's love. We cannot make it through all of this on our own. We have to trust in God. We have to humble ourselves before God and pray and seek God's faith because it's God's strength that gets us through. Amen? You know, I've been thinking about this today as we get ready to, to share today in, in communion. You know, some people suggest that, that Ephesians gives us three keys to spiritual victory. To seek God's power, to seek God's power, to to practice these Christian virtues, and then to pray. And I was thinking about those three things as I think this morning about communion. You know, communion is, is a practice that we participate in on a regular basis, but communion for us, it's, it's a sacrament. And by that, we mean that, that, that communion is a means of grace. That through our obedience in this practice, we are acknowledging the fact that we need God's grace continually in our lives. That we can't do this on our own. And also through this, one of the things that we do in communion is we, as we are reminded of that first communion meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, there's the words that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You know, anytime you remember, it always leads to action. Anytime you remember, it leads to action. And that's the way in which we are to live our lives out as those who receive God's grace to live in response to God's grace. And then finally, in this communion meal, Jesus says, anytime you eat of the bread or drink of the cup, do so in remembrance of me. And I don't think Jesus was just talking about when we gathered in a sanctuary to drink some juice, to eat some bread. But any time we gather together, when we receive the bread and juice that's a gift from God, we are reminded that we depend upon him 
for our daily bread, that we cannot make it alone. You with me? And so today, I pray that we would enter into this time of communion, knowing that it is by the strength and power of God, and it's through our faithful response to that, and by living lives of prayer, that we live as people who live for God's kingdom in the midst of worldly kingdoms that might call us astray. Uh, You know, one of the most basic affirmations of faith in the church is simply this, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Will you say that with me today? Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Lord, today as we prepare to share in this communion meal, Lord, we are aware of how challenging it can be sometimes to live as faithful followers of yours in this world. And God, today we humble ourselves as we prepare to receive this means of grace. Lord, we humble ourselves affirming the reality that we need your grace to live for you each day. And God, our prayer today as we prepare to receive this communion meal is that you would use what is ordinary, a piece of bread and a little bit of juice. And by your power at work in, within this, you would take this ordinary meal and use it to accomplish your will in our lives. And Lord, we also pray that you would take our ordinary lives and through your power at work within us, that you would use us to accomplish your will in the world around us. So God, we ask these things in your name. Amen. You know, as Jesus had gathered together with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal, the same night he would be betrayed, they shared in this reminder of God's faithfulness. And during the course of the meal, it came time to partake of the bread. And so Jesus took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke the bread, said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Would you eat this in remembrance of me? I'd invite you to eat with me today. Later in the meal, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood, which is shed for you, the cup of the new covenant. Would you drink and always be thankful? Let us drink together today. Lord, we thank you again for your love, for your faithfulness, for your grace, for your power. And God, in a world that is full of so many things that would pull us away, Lord, we offer ourselves to you once again today. And we pray that you would help us to live faithful lives, strong in you, the kinds of lives that would show your love and goodness to those around us. We ask all of this today in your name. Amen. Would you stand this morning?
that's your prayer today, that Christ would be magnified in your life, that Christ would be seen in and through you. So as we go today, let's go in the grace of God and the love of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit so that Christ might be magnified in us and through us. Amen.